1: I'm very glad to have all of you with us for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I I should say right off the bat that you will, it won't take you long to notice that my voice is a little weak. I've developed a chest cold, and so I'm a bit hoarse, but I'm going to do my best to get through the show today. And by the way, since we are living in these very, very troubling pandemic times, let me very quickly say I do not have COVID-19. I am fully vaccinated, I've been fully vaccinated, given my old age for a number of weeks. So I'm one of those fortunate people who can wake up feeling kind of sick and not immediately uh, think, oh my gosh, I've got the virus. In my case, I I don't. And I I know some of you will wonder about that. Uh, But but we'll get through the show And, and it's a really important show today because obviously the pandemic has affected virtually every aspect of all of our lives. But I'm really not sure that anywhere that uh, the, the uh, questions about the virus and how it has affected us have been more fraught, um, more fearful, more confusing than in our school system, where we have been uncertain of how to proceed: in-person classes, remote classes. Our teachers vulnerable to getting uh, sick. Our parents, uh, you know desperate to get their kids back in school, both because they think it's a better place for them to truly learn, also because they really need them out of the house so they can continue with the work that they do. It's just been a very difficult year, and I think in many ways ground zero for our concerns about the virus really have been on uh, in the school system itself. So with that in mind, we have a lot to talk about in that regard on the show today, and the right panel to do it. First of all, it is Thursday, which means my partner on today's show is the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution himself, Mr. Kevin Riley. Hi Kevin.
2: Well it's good to be with you. I'm sorry you're a little under the weather, but what I would say is Bill Nigat, not a hundred percent, is better than most people at their very, <laughs> very best. So and I am oh, looking I, forward I'm looking forward to the show because uh, obviously at the newspaper, we've covered this issue a lot. And, you know, one of the things that's happened in this pandemic is that we have our tax dollars involved in education. We have our children involved in education, which always makes it a a topic that brings out a lot of attention and often controversy. And then the, the pandemic has added our health to the equation. So these questions are big for everybody in our community and in our state.
1: Um, And of course, uh, GPB has a team here that's been doing a lot of work, Ellen Eldridge particularly, and our reporting staff working on uh, issues involving schools because she has a couple of kids in schools. But yes, the AJC team has been all over this. And one of the people who is with us today, one of your colleagues, and has devoted an enormous amount of time in her Get Schooled column, Uh, to covering issues surrounding the virus is Maureen Downey. Maureen, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning. How are you, Maureen?
0: Uh, I am fine. I am uh, from the safety of my couch, uh, speaking to all of you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you here. Uh, We are joined again. It's been a while, but Tracy Nance Pendley is back with us today. Uh, Tracy is a fourth-grade teacher in the uh, Atlanta public school system and uh, is the Georgia Teacher of the Year. That was an honor, Tracy, that I think was supposed to run through, what, 2019, uh, and because of the pandemic your reign as teacher of the year is now like a year and ten months or something right
2: it
3: is still going <laughs> um, and really,
1: well congratulations
3: <laughs> thank you uh,
1: well <laughs> we're really happy to have you here you're teaching fourth grade uh classes and I wanna we're really looking forward to talking about how things are going at, at your school in the next few minutes um Absolutely. we're also joined today by by Dr. Sarah Vinson, who is an adult child and adolescent uh, psychiatrist with her own private practice. Um, Dr. Vinson, you also are a clinical professor of uh, psychiatry and, uh, at, and, and um, I think, pediatrics at the Morehouse School of Medicine, where, speaking of honors, uh, shortly after you got to Morehouse, you were named Teacher of the Year. Uh, in faculty member of the year in your specialty at Morehouse. So we've got some real experts on the show today. How are you, Dr. Vinson?
4: I'm good. Thank you so much for bringing attention to this topic. It's, it's one that is in every clinic meeting uh, this year.
1: I, I'm sure that's completely true. Um, let me start out with a, um, Maureen. Let me turn to you, if I may. Um, give us, if you would, and, and everybody else is welcome to join in on this. But the ups and downs of this year in terms of schools, and we're talking primarily about public schools in Georgia, whether they can open safely, whether they have to continue remote learning have really been extraordinary. Um, There are school districts in Metro Atlanta across and across the state that have made tentative efforts to open for in-person classes. People have been identified with the virus. They've had to shut down. Uh, they've tried to reopen again. I mean, just give us a general sense of how difficult this year has been across the state. You
0: know, I, I think this year has been probably the most stressful uh, in any teacher's life that I can imagine. I also think, obviously, it's been very hard on parents, many of whom depend on schools to mind their children during the day while they're working, and that sort of secondary purpose of school, secondary to education, has dominated some of the discussions this year about, about school closings and the impact. But, uh, you know, I think this has been a really tough year. I think it has taught us that um, it, it has basically shown, I think, in my view, that we don't put enough a priority on schools because part of the reason our schools had to close was that we allowed so many other things to open. And we also had a failure, in my view, here in Georgia, of really moving quickly to what the experts said was vital, and that was universal masks. We actually still have school buildings. I will uh, call out Forsyth County, a county that is known for its STEM education, where they still do not require students to wear masks, despite that being the number one. So uh, there was a lot of uh, unknowns about this virus, a lot of evolving information. And a lot of the uncertainty and a lot of the wrong moves played out across schools. And I think schools, unfortunately, uh, became a focal point in what was a larger discussion. And that was whether we as, as as citizens of Georgia, as residents of Georgia, were willing to do what it took to rein in this virus. And in many cases, I'm sorry to say, people were not willing to do that at the state level, at the schoolhouse level, and basically walking down the neighborhood streets where people still in my neighborhood here in Decatur will tell me in the grocery store I just can't wear a mask or I, do, I won't wear a mask. And it's only a small number, but there's enough of those folks statewide to have, uh, you know, escalated this, this crisis.
1: Now, let me follow up in just two ways with, with you and then bring everybody else in. Um, number one, we also, I know that in Cobb County, we're, we're sadly, we lost, I think, at least three teachers, to the best of my knowledge, died because of the virus. There was a big controversy there because they were not requiring within the school system masks. Tracy Pendley just sent me a little note saying it was for teachers in Cobb County. They weren't requiring people to wear masks. But let me ask you the broader question. I tried yesterday in researching this show to see if there was a place where I could discover— how many school systems across the state are now open for in-person learning? How many are still doing it by remote? I couldn't find any kind of master list of that, Maureen. But to the best of your knowledge, are most schools now open for in-person learning, with, with the exceptions being the remote schools?
0: The, the overwhelming majority of Georgia school systems are open for face-to-face uh, classes, and uh, some of the rural schools really never closed to any great extent, uh, except perhaps for rolling closures due to quarantines. At this point, the only district that I is is, is planning to remain remote for this uh, 2021 school year is Clayton. DeKalb County, at long last, is uh, announced going back uh, starting early March. Atlanta's already been in the process of going back. That said, we have to remember that many of these school districts gave parents choices. And in some school districts, we have less than half of the students reporting to the buildings, uh, the parents and guardians opting to keep those kids in remote because of family concerns, because of uh, uh, concerns about whether the schools truly are safe environments. But at this point, most Georgia schools are, in fact, back in some form to -to face-to-face learning.
1: Um, Tracy and then Kevin, I'd love for you to, to weigh in with a question. You've been remote at Burgess Peterson Academy, which is where you teach, since last March, um, but have begun doing a little bit of a mix at your school. Have I got that right?
3: Yes, we have about 20% of our students reporting um, we just recently lost our Title I status, and what we learned, at least within the Atlanta Public School District, is that our schools with more privileged families, a higher population of privileged students, these are the schools that we're opting in for face-to-face, largely.
2: Uh, I have a question for you, Dr. Vincent. Um, you know, a lot, there have been so many different uh, uh, sort of arguments on both sides about what both sides about whether to send kids back or open schools. Um, apologize there for my uh, dog. He's a big fan of the show, so sometimes when he hears my voice on the radio, he gets excited. But um, what do you, what what are the things that should be considered in your view as it affects sort of just the mental health of kids being back in school, being with their friends as opposed to being isolated or online all day. So.
4: There's the reading, writing, and arithmetic that kids learn in school, right? But then there's also uh, the wow. aspect in learning how to relate to other children and learning about themselves in the process. And so it's not just about uh, the curriculum. Uh, there's all of these things that they gain from being around their peers, uh, from being in new settings, um, and frankly, sometimes from getting a break from their home environment. And so We know that they've missed instruction, but we also know that they've missed opportunities to develop extracurricular interests, uh, to strengthen their relationships with friends or potential friends, um, and to learn about themselves in in doing that.
2: Well, let me follow up with that. Um, How, I mean, in in your view, and then I I would love to have uh, uh, Tracy weigh in here, too, is – is that, does that outweigh the risk of them either getting or transmitting the virus? I mean, isn't that the big question? And is that at the crux of this based on how either school administrators or parents feel, right?
4: Right, and I think that that risk really looks different uh, based on a few things. So one of the things that I've seen as a clinician is that students who have special needs have been particularly impacted uh, by having virtual school because often, Uh, That has meant that their special education plan is not followed with the same fidelity, and they are really falling behind. And so for those children, uh, being remote is even more of a risk uh, because we know once they fall behind, it's going to be even harder for them to catch up. When it comes to thinking about the risk of the virus, it really does matter what the school's doing to decrease the risk to the students who are there. Um, So when you're weighing those pros and cons, just like I do as a physician when I'm thinking about medicine, uh, you think about potential side effects and risks, and you think about how to mitigate those. And I think that to the earlier comment uh, that we have to, as a society, make decisions to lower the risk that would be associated with in-person learning so that that equation tips in the favor very clearly of of children being able to return.
1: Tracy, how much more difficult— has it been uh, go ahead, Kevin, you, 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 go well, ahead. I was just
2: going to ask Tracy to follow up on that. I mean, as a teacher, you know, how do you, how did you think about that?
3: I mean, it's tough because the kids are missing a lot of curriculum and they are missing a lot of the social and um, emotional aspects of learning at school. And I think it's important when we think about the return to face to face is that, You know, in a perfect case scenario, everyone would be able to follow those CDC protocols and guidelines very carefully. But the reality of children ages 3 to 18 carefully following those guidelines um, on the ground, it's not matching up. You know, if people are able to follow those guidelines and all will go well, however, that's not what we're seeing. And we continue to get cases and reports of the kids being super spreaders. And more recently, of the teachers transmitting to one another in the coffee room, um, in the lunchroom. Children are taking off their masks to have breakfast in the classroom with their teacher. You know, and it's also important to remember that when kids are face-to-face in the building right now, it is not the school that we know and that we love. The children are spaced as far as they possibly can be. They have giant plastic and cardboard shields around their desks. Even in the lunchroom, there's only two kids to a table. So all of that social piece that we're missing so much, um, its that's not what it looks like right now. So they're still missing a good bit of that. And instruction is still virtual. The teacher is having to simultaneously teach the virtual students on Zoom as well as the students who are face-to-face in their classroom.
1: Um, Maureen, we planned this show almost a week ago, knew we were going to do it today. And Governor Kemp... Uh, apparently today is going to give us a great uh, a story to discuss in terms of this show. Uh, d- teachers have been urging for a long time now that they ought to be included in phase one of the vaccine. And uh, Kemp has resisted, uh, saying, no, I think it's older Georgians who are uh, the most at risk. And now, apparently today, he is prepared to say yes, as we get more and more supply of vaccine we do need to start vaccinating teachers. Uh, that's a that's a big deal, isn't it, Maureen?
0: It is a big deal, but it's also a logistical challenge. So as to when uh, teachers will start getting vaccinations, um, I think we're expecting the governor to uh, say that they can begin in, the, in early March. The issue is, uh, you pointed out that it's very hard to get any registry of what schools are doing. Uh, that's both in Georgia and nationwide because schools are – essentially independent in many ways. Districts are independent. So that same thing will occur with how vaccines are given. We have 180-some, uh, 89 school districts, and the governor, I think, is going to, and DOE, uh, Department of Education, leave it to them to decide. So uh, we have a story that just went up this morning by my colleague, Kai Tagami, on how that's going to look different. Some school districts are going to do it uh, in their own buildings, with hopefully with their own nurses, with the local Department of Health Um Uh, Lending a hand Gwinnett plans to send its mega teaching force to one of the mass vaccination centers in the county so I think there's I think this is a great step I think it is an overdue step I think it is a complicated step though so in other words teachers will not be vaccinated in two days Uh, it'll it'll be a a process so I think it's important that um, teachers do get vaccinated and I'm hoping that the state survey that's intended that less than half were willing to do so probably reflected some gaps in who answered the survey. And I, I do believe that when vaccinations come to the schoolhouse, most staff will line up for them. I, th- I don't know. Tracy, what do you think about that?
3: They absolutely will. I personally have not met one educator who doesn't want it. But, I have but, not either. either. And it's but it is wild that. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's wild to think no, that. I was teachers- sim- Georgia are having to drive to Alabama to get vaccinations right now. We've been called essential workers, but we're not included in that first group.
1: Uh, I we should say, on... Kevin, go ahead.
0: Uh, I was just going to say, um, uh, I just saw on some teacher listserv last night, teachers went to Tennessee yesterday to get back, Georgia teachers went to Tennessee, and some of them were trying to get a group together to go to North Carolina. That's nuts, that our teachers are traveling to other states to get vaccinations so they can teach in classrooms in Georgia
1: kevin
2: well one of the oddities of the governor's statement uh the other i guess it was yesterday uh was that um as we reported today uh that that he cited those the low percentage of teachers surveyed who wanted to get vaccinated as part of his reason for including teachers because he he, as he's pointed out there's a shortage of vaccines so um he's happy to include a group where there won't he seems to feel there won't be a lot of people who want to get vaccinated. So, uh, Dr. Vincent, I mean, um, again, coming around to both the the medicine and the and the the mental part of getting vaccinated. Um, what have you heard from you know uh, people who don't want to get vaccinated? I mean, are are they coming around? As we've seen, very little bad reaction to these vaccines. The people who are
4: concerned who I've spoken with here in my capacity as a teacher at a medical school or as someone who is taking care of people is that a lot of their concerns are just long-term side effects. And so for them, it's going to take some time uh, to really feel more comfortable uh, with the idea of getting their concerns about how quickly it came out. Um, and them just wanting to take a wait-and-see approach. Um, and there are some that are hoping that enough other people get the vaccine that eventually they'll start immunity and they won't have to. Um, and so I think it's it's really going to take a significant amount of time for everybody to, to come around um, based on what I'm hearing.
1: Dr. Vincent, one of the things that has um, been uh, interesting and troubling throughout the entire course of the pandemic is, um, you know, we're used to expecting that uh, doctors, scientists have have all the answers to everything we're dealing with uh, in medicine. And, of course, the fact of the matter is what we've learned throughout the coronavirus pandemic is that knowledge about it has been evolving. And so things that were said, say, a year ago, don't wear a mask because uh, first-line healthcare workers need those masks, not you, uh, don't do in-person schooling because you need to be remote because of the transmission of the disease, say, from students back to their family. I mean, we're still evolving in our understanding. And and I mention that now because one of the things we seem to be learning is that transmission of the virus is more likely to be from teachers rather than students taking it home. Right?
4: That's correct. and And— Part of the reason we think that is is because children just aren't as symptomatic, and so there's not as much. Uh, don't want to get too graphic, but uh, a virus spreading uh, from them because they don't have as many symptoms. And and that's absolutely right. Is we have never uh, gone through something like this before
1: um, in, in
4: our times, um, and with the current sort of configuration of medicine and research and science. And I think it's been a really humbling experience for all of us uh, to have this challenge and to have to figure out you know, how we meet this and how we are balanced and how we're presenting what we know and what we don't know um, and honest and transparent about what we're learning as we go along.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way now, and when we come back, continue this conversation. Among other things, Tracy Pendley, I really want you to just give us a sense as a teacher of what this past year has been like, for you. The challenges, maybe some of the victories, maybe some of the things you think have been lost. Let's uh, do that with you and the rest of our panel when Political Rewind continues.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: We're talking about Georgia schools and COVID on today's edition of Political Rewind, uh, AJC uh, columnist, Maureen Downey, who writes Get Schooled uh, for the AJC, is with us. Tracy Nance Pendley, Georgia Teacher of the Year and an APS fourth grade teacher at Burgess Peterson Academy. Dr. Sarah Vinson, a child and adult and adolescent psychiatrist, and of course, Kevin Riley uh, with me on the Thursday edition of the show. Tracy, um... So let me give you a personal experience, but, I, but I'm more interested in hearing yours uh, than sharing mine, but I will share it. So um, among the things that my wife does is that she is working this entire year, since middle of last year, with engineering faculty and students in universities across the country, uh, uh, doing work with them on, on their, their, the, how they tell the stories about uh, their work. And, and the reason I mention it is that a lot of what she was doing was supposed to be in-person teaching. When the coronavirus struck, she had to shift all of it to obviously remote. She does sessions now with as many as 125 people on Zoom conferences, doing breakout rooms, doing general sessions with all of them. It's been an extraordinary learning experience. Um, and I think she would say it's, had, it's been a mixed blessing. So what has it been like for you as a fourth-grade teacher to try to adapt in this past year? How difficult, how challenging, and how rewarding in whatever ways it might have been?
3: Yeah, I can definitely echo those sentiments of hers. Um, It's been a roller coaster. You know, we had to, back in March, we had to flip really quickly and learn a million new platforms online in order to manage our students and to give them the tools that they needed. And I would say that we kind of went in on a high. We were feeling good. We had the respect of the country and of the state. And we spent the summer filling in all the gaps that we found in the spring. For example, when we switched to remote learning in March, we lost contact with a lot of our students. And so we really worked hard over the summer to figure out how we could reach out to them. And that turned into knocking on doors, lots of phone calls, lots of reaching out to the families that we had built personal relationships with. And I would say a big part of what we've lost um, is just that face-to-face relationship building. Now on the positive side, we've We've learned so much technology and we have uh, much stronger relationships with families and that now we are in their homes, right? I know what their home life looks like. Um, But then there was also this flip recently, right? Where, teachers, you are essential workers and you must go back into the buildings. You don't have a choice. No, we're only going to approve 10% of teleworking requests. And if you don't want to go, it must mean that you're lazy. And that just drives me crazy. It was just such, it's whiplash from being the hero and going above and beyond to now we're just lazy. When I'm sure that your wife can attest to this too, is that planning those lessons virtually and getting the type of responses and learning that we're hoping for, it's so much harder than face to
1: face. And so um, I'm really how,
3: looking for some of that respect to return.
1: Um, first, you and then Dr. Vincent, a uh, question for both of you. Uh, Tracy, how f- much have your students lost by being remote a- academically? How do, you, how do you measure whether they have been able to maintain the academic achievements that they sh- would have had in a normal year? Um, how behind are they? How does that feel?
3: I would say that um, it's mixed. Our students with special needs, they definitely need a lot of the one-on-one work. Um, And then I have some students that didn't do as well in the classroom, they're excelling because of the new autonomy and the new freedom that they have. Um, But all in all, I would say that most children have lost about the same amount in terms of that instruction, Um, but it's constantly getting better. One of my daughters is just excelling The other daughter, every night I'm working on phonics with her, trying to get her caught up. She's trying to learn how to read. Um, And I think it's just really mixed. Every kid is different and every family is different.
1: Dr. Vinson?
4: I I agree that it it is a case-by-case situation, but taking a sort of population view, and as someone who works in both public and private sector settings, I would say that my experience of this is that it has exacerbated the existing educational divide. Um, the privileges, the people who had and the people who didn't have, um, and that students in private schools or in uh, more wealthy school districts have had more resources to deal with this. Their families have more resources to deal with this, like being able to have um, teachers or pods or Kumon Academy or, or or people that they are able to bring in to pay to to help with these things. And so my concern is that we, we knew education wasn't equitable before this and that this year, we've really seen that widen both along
1: uh,
4: class lines, but also when it
2: comes to special needs. Maureen, um, one of the things that uh, you have done is track, um, I think what, what Tracy uh, was describing, right? This up and down uh, sentiment around teachers. And I mean we've had school district parents protest Uh, uh, that schools should stay closed and protests that they should be open, like on the same day at times, I think. But but what has been kind of that behind-the-scenes political undercurrent that you've seen in your reporting about why it's so up and down?
0: You know, I I think that uh, Tracy is right, and I've written about this, that teachers were celebrated in March for the quick pivot, and now they're being... um, uh, vilified because they don't want to go back into schools um, uh, when when I think we have come to the point where people are COVID weary and they want to return to normal. And as a result of that, uh, they are looking for uh, schools to return to normal. And and I do think that teachers, for whatever reason, there it goes back a long way. I think that being a largely female profession might be one reason, but that, as a group, they really are a political punching bag. Uh, I can remember uh, sessions of the legislature where they were held up as role models, and others where they were held up as um, sort of um, union minions who um, had you know, simply wanted to get the best salary and the least working hours. And it goes back and forth all the time. I'm really amazed anybody stays in teaching sometimes when I see the um, lack of respect that are, that's accorded teachers. You know, I think right now we have parents who feel like uh, we're over this and the school should be over this too. And there's also been a very a strange thing that has come out what people expect. Even at the point where we were very uncertain about how COVID-19 spread and how uh, much risk there was in school in school classrooms, I still had parents saying to me, "We're paying these teachers, and by God, for that forty-five thousand dollars a year, these teachers should be willing to go back into the classroom and put their lives on the line." Uh, someone earlier said, "I think Bill, you used the term that people, you know, teachers were regarded as essential workers, uh, as were doctors and nurses." But when you look at the um, precautions that doctors and nurses were given as essential workers when they're in, in hospitals versus what we wanted teachers to do, to go into classrooms with paper masks, not even requiring all kids to wear them, ancient ventilation in some of the older buildings, impossible to do any social distancing, never mind six feet, maybe not even three feet. So if you wanted to call them essential workers, you we had to treat them as such. We had to vaccine them, vaccinate them first, We had to make sure they had all the right equipment. We never did that. We just gave them the label essential without what that meant.
1: So, um, Maureen, uh, and and I think Dr. Vincent, you also should weigh in on this. Um, Maureen, you said earlier that with few exceptions, schools across the state are widely open for in-person learning. Uh, In the same way that it was difficult to find research that showed me how many schools across the state are actually open, it's virtually impossible to find data uh, sets that tell us uh, how much transmission of the virus there's been because of in-person schooling. Uh, So I don't know that information. I'll bet that you don't have it either. And without that, uh, we really It'll be great the teachers are going to start getting vaccinated, but we're still on uncertain ground, Maureen, about how dangerous the situation is in some parts of the state for people to be doing in-person learning, especially if they're not taking all the precautions CDC recommends. Well,
0: that's absolutely correct. And, and part of that problem was the state of Georgia and the Department of Public Health did not uh, institute a universal reporting system and obligate every school district to tell us the same information in a timely fashion. So, you know, I still get uh, probably, I would say eight to 15 messages a day via my various social media channels and my work email from teachers who say they are not telling us the truth about who has uh, been COVID exposed or who has COVID. And they don't, they're limiting who even they notify within the building. I mean, school districts have different policies about the people in the building and how they're informed and what they're told. You know, when history books are written about COVID, I think the the chapters on schools will be absolutely um, chilling. Because I do think that we had uh, district administrators who felt like they wanted to uh, tamp down on information going out as to not be alarm the public. But in doing so, they put the people in the buildings at risk. And again, this is an evol- evolving story. At this point, we're saying school transmission is not great. When it does occur, it's teacher to teacher in informal conversations in the hallways and parking lots and over lunch. But now we have these new variants. I listened to a Harvard forum the other day, and the lead experts say that we are seeing more variants than they expected. And these variants are taking unique paths that they were not not really – that science didn't account for, or didn't sort of – uh, explain. So, we are still on we're still in uncharted territory with this.
1: Dr. Vincent, would you respond to that how, without data, how do we know how safe our schools are across the state?
4: The simple answer is we don't. Right? We we have to measure and get data and we cannot use a bury our heads in the sand approach to this. There's the issue of data and what it tells us, but I think the larger issue here is the issue of trust. If we're not intentional about getting that information and then sharing that information, it's going to be really hard to work together to get children back in schools because we need parents to trust us. We need teachers to trust the administrators and that information and that sharing is a really critical part of being able to do that.
1: And so Tracy, there's another area where teachers are going to bear some of the brunt of mistrust from families out there who aren't certain what's happening in terms of COVID in their schools.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of our families have built strong relationships, um, but the ones who are hesitant to return, it's for good reason. Um, And they know that they're not getting all the data. At most schools, it is self-reported, at least at my school. Um, I'm also very well aware that I am in one of the top Atlanta public schools and that I had excellent leadership. So, the things that we have in place, you know, multiple temperature checks throughout the day, um, two different types of masks, and then all of the technology that we have for simultaneous teaching, um, that's just not the case in other buildings. And so, I imagine that there is a lot of mistrust between families and teachers. But importantly, and this speaks to um, what Dr. Vincent said is that there's a lot of mistrust right now t- between teachers and our district, right? You're calling us essential and you're forcing us back in, but you're not hearing our voices.
2: Uh, Dr. Vincent, you know, Bill mentioned this at the top of the show, uh, Cobb County, where they had four educators who died during all of this. And where where the way the administration handled it became a very public issue. Um, I don't know if I would call it a dispute, but it was very emotional and very public in terms of how people felt about how the district handled it. it from, from the perspective of, of, of this impact we ha- people have when someone dies or someone close to them dies or a kid's teacher dies, I mean, what is the right way to handle that kind of thing for a kid or a family or a school building or a school district?
4: We know that transparency is really important. Um, and it's also critical that people feel supported um, as, and as was mentioned earlier, uh, heard. And so it is going to be hard when you lose a teacher regardless of what the reason is, but certainly in a year when we've had so much tragedy and so much disruption. And so it's not that we expect the school district to make all the things go away or to make this easy. It's not going to be easy. Uh, But what we do need is the ability to move on, to work together, and to be able to use the information we have from the things that have occurred to help people feel and be safer.
1: So uh, before we've got to get to a break, but, but, but Dr. Vincent, I want to follow up on that, if I may. I hadn't really thought about it as much as I probably should have until you haven't asked you that question. How much fear are you seeing in children these days about COVID-19? Or has it really escalated young people? I mean, young kids have anxieties already about so many aspects of life. What has COVID done to ratchet up their fears about life around them?
4: It's been interesting to watch you know, how things have changed over the past year because, as somebody else mentioned, people are getting COVID-weary. And so my kids who have lost someone to the virus have a very different experience um, and thought about it than the kids who haven't. For the ones who haven't, uh, they know it's this big, bad, bad thing, but it's much more abstract in terms of what that risk is, whereas the ones who've had to go through grief and disruption and uh, family loss because of it, uh, may have more fears associated with it because it's very, very real
1: to them. Uh, let's get to our final break of the show. When we come back, a couple of important issues to pick up on. One, Maureen Downey has written a lot about testing, standardized testing, in the middle of the virus. We ought to talk about that. And we also, uh, Dr. Vincent, ought to talk about what's the impact of this of virus on parents who have been stuck at home with their children and have struggled with family life and the dynamics around that. We'll do all that and more when we come back. Maureen Downey, you've written a lot in your Get Schooled blog column about uh, standardized testing and the state of Georgia's approach to whether people should be, kids should be taking standardized tests in the middle of all this or not. Uh, where do we stand right now, and why is that an issue? Uh,
0: right now, we stand at the federal government uh, this week uh, in a letter to the um, school uh, state school chiefs said they want, uh, they will not likely waive uh, mandated federal uh, testing, which means Georgia has to give them milestones. Uh, Georgia only a couple weeks earlier had resubmitted its uh, request to the federal department, U.S. Department of Education, to allow it not to give them milestones. Uh, our superintendent, Richard Woods, has been very um, consistent that giving um, high-stakes testing during a pandemic. Uh, is um, a waste of time and a disservice to teachers and uh, students, but it looks like we will be giving the milestones. And uh, he issued a rebuttal uh, uh, yesterday, a statement in response, saying that what he will not do, though, is uh, force schools to bring kids learning remotely back into buildings for testing, because high-stakes testing has to be done in buildings and so the uh, students who will take the milestones in Georgia are likely the ones who are already in face-to-face classes Uh, and and the reason why people don't want testing is there's two reasons there's the mental health issue you have kids who have just been coming back to school now particularly in metro Atlanta do you want them to have to come back just for a few months uh, and then have to sit for a grueling battery of tests that really at this point the accuracy of what those tests will show us is not clear. The idea is the test will identify gaps that were created this year. Some of the opponents and who are, who are testing experts say, just assume there are gaps and proceed accordingly. You don't need to have a high-stakes testing. Let teachers make that deduction by their own classroom expertise. Uh, on the other hand, I listened to a, a panel last night of black educators sponsored by Education Trust, and uh, several of the leaders of, of uh, organizations support it because they believe you need data to know what's happening. Uh, that said, I do think testing will will be hard this year and will, in fact, make a difficult year uh, more
1: more difficult. Tracy?
3: Yeah, it, Maureen nailed it. It's, um, I have a lot of respect for our superintendent, who his advocacy has been very strong and very clear across the board. Um, but testing this year, it's going to be expensive. It, the weight of it is actually so far less than usual. It's, those tests are usually weighted 20%, and this year it'll be 0.05. And for some high school classes, 0.01%. So not very useful there. Um, and trying to get families to come back into the building for this test? Come on. Come on. So if for all of the educators and parents that are listening right now, listen, we are not worrying about the test this year. If they make us do it, do it. But do not spend a lot of time trying to test prep or worry about it because it's not a big deal.
1: Um let let me okay. So we'll follow up on that as as the weeks go by to see about standardized testing. But, Dr. Vincent, um, talk about what's happening in families. We do know, based on some research, that uh, incidents of domestic violence have increased uh, during uh, the lockdown. Uh, but I'm also wondering about parents who are stuck at home with their kids because, <clears throat> excuse me, they the kids aren't in school so. Uh, a mother or father is is at home trying to oversee their kids doing remote learning. Um, How difficult has this been for families? And what are you seeing in your private practice?
4: So the, the, the general sentiment is that the the kids are winning. Uh, The the parents feel uh, overwhelmed. They feel tired. um, And they're also trying to manage working from home and, Again, it's been interesting watching this over time because at first uh, it seemed as if employers were more sort of understanding and supportive. But as this has gone on, uh, they know that you're stuck at home anyway, so they're expecting you to work through lunch and work late hours and and all of these things. And so they're not just having the fatigue set in of being stuck in the house together all the time, but it's also juggling that with the demands of their job if they're still – um, able to, to have them. The, the other thing I've seen too, is that because of the economy and their concerns about it, that people are staying uh, because they don't feel as if they have much of a choice in situations that are really stressful for them. Um, we know that women, as a rule, are going to end up with more of the burden uh, when it comes to household uh needs. And, and that's certainly been the case as well. And we've seen that with women uh, coming out of the job market because it's just been too much uh, to try to juggle for them.
2: Dr. Vincent, uh, you know, um, we at the newspaper, we, we have regular conversations with uh, our staff on a rotating basis, video calls. And uh, it, there's almost no call where parents don't talk about the challenge of educating their kids at home. So talk to me directly as a, as a as a, as a boss, I guess, and tell me what I should be doing to make it easier for the, the parents who work for me or, or how I should respond to their, their challenges.
4: I think to the extent that it's possible uh, being flexible with people and their schedules, as long as they get it done, <laughs> being less worried about necessarily how they get it done or when they get it done, uh, because you know, if a child needs to be picked up or they have to help them proctor an exam, you know, parents, they, they, they're they driven to put their child and their needs first. And if they are not able uh, to be present in the way that they feel their children need to, then they're often not present at work either. Um, and, and so it's to everyone's benefit if they're allowed that time uh, to the extent that it's possible uh, to be able to be there for their children, uh, but also fulfill their job responsibilities and understand that that's going to look different. Um, during these times
1: that it has before. Tracy, you're a mom and a teacher. What's it been like for you?
3: It's very challenging. (laughs) In fact, every single day there's an example of me on the computer with a little one maybe half naked, you know, popping in on the screen with me um, who needs me. But, yeah, it was tough. Um, In fact, I only recently – um, could no longer afford to keep my virtual school nanny, and so me being forced back into the building physically, I had to bring my own daughters with me just last week, and you know that's scary for a lot of different reasons. Um, but we're doing the best we can, and I was hoping to keep those numbers down in my own school building by keeping my kids at home, but it's a challenge.
1: Um, I want Maureen, we're we've got just a few minutes left, but I want to revisit something that. Excuse me, Dr. Vinson really pointed out earlier, uh, a a theme on this show for most of the last year when we talk about coronavirus has been how it has once again exposed the inequities in so many aspects of our lives. Um, Health care being obviously the most important example. Uh, African Americans, Hispanics, Uh, getting COVID-19 at far greater rates than than white people. Um, And now to hear Dr. Vincent, of course, and also Tracy, who talks about being in one of the better schools in uh, the state. um, The inequities that we're seeing exposed in terms of education will continue far beyond the coronavirus. And and this is a wake up call.
0: It's a wake up call, although I, I do agree it's a confirmation of what we already knew, that families with means are going to cope better than families without, with, you know, without means. You know, I do think this exposed something, what we can address though, uh, we can address what it exposed at the state level in terms of policy, and that is that all these little discussions we've had over the last 15 years about lack of Internet access for rural Georgians, for low-income Georgians, we have to fix that. There is agreement now. Um, I heard um, the creator of Khan Academy on a, also on a seminar yesterday say that this has been a talk, but now he really believes it will happen. Georgia has to make that happen. The other issue we have to talk about, and it would be a whole other show for us, would be how do we respond when, when kids come back in the summer and, and the fall to quote normal school, how do we um, address that? And the theme right now is: don't talk about remediation; talk about acceleration. Put kids where they're supposed to be. Identify what they don't have to be there and fix it right there. So I think there's a great deal. Of that. The good thing is that the lack of equity issue uh, has really gotten a lot of attention throughout this entire pandemic. Uh, educators are talking about it. School boards are, uh, school, you know, boards are talking about it. Uh, The question is, will we have the resources to do the kind of acceleration and um, gap filling that we need to do? And that, I think, we all should be watching here in Georgia.
1: Dr. Vinson?
4: I I absolutely agree. And the talk is is great, but now it's time for action. Um, And I really hope that we don't fall into this trap of, well, you know, we don't have data. We're not sure. We absolutely know which kids have not been logging in. We know which kids have not had access to the internet. Uh, we which schools those are needed in. We don't necessarily need individual level data. Uh, we know which schools and which school districts are going to need more resources when these kids go back. Um, and so we are going to have choices to make as a society about whether we're going to be proactive about putting those resources in place. And also, uh, I think it's important that we understand it's not just about Uh, their grades and how they do academically, this is about their life trajectory. And this is also about the potential uh, for kids in higher risk communities uh, to be routed from academia or school to juvenile justice or the criminal justice system. And that's something that I'm very concerned about uh, for for some of the kids that I work with. Um, And so we have to be proactive and we have to decide to invest in communities where we traditionally have not.
1: Uh, well, Dr. Vincent, how hopeful are you that I called it a wake-up call, that maybe we are learning lessons about the need for a more equitable society in so many areas of our lives?
4: <laughs> There's the call, and then there has to be the action. And so I'm i am I'm waiting, um, and, and we'll keep calling for that, that action piece.
1: All right. um, Final word from you on this show, Dr. Sarah Vinson. I appreciate your uh, joining us for the show today. Uh, Tracy Nance Pendley, good luck uh, going back into the classroom. I hope you get vaccinated as soon as possible. Maureen Downey, we read your Get Schooled blog regularly. It's a great way to keep up to uh, speed on what's happening in schools across the state. Kevin Riley, thank you for being with us on the show today. I'll see you again about a week from now. That's it for us uh, for today. Thanks for putting up with me with my kind of hoarse voice. I'm going to try to keep going, and uh, we'll be back with you all, I hope, tomorrow morning on another edition of Political Rewind. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and now CDC says, yep, wear two masks when you go out into the world. See you all tomorrow.